Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm very excited to be talking with Ben Tepper today. Ben is the department chair and professor at The Ohio State University. He got his BS in psychology from The Ohio State University and a PhD from the University of Miami. His research interests focus on managerial leadership, employee health and well-being, and the performance of pro-social and antisocial work behaviors. He's been the associate editor uh, he is the associate editor of the Academy of Management Journal where he has been published and also published in the Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes and the Journal of Applied Psychology, as well as Personnel Psychology. Um, The NCAA has used Ben's abusive supervision scale, which has become known as the Tepper Scale. Ben, I want to thank you for being part of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board and for talking with me today on the PCA One-on-One podcast. It's my pleasure. Delighted to talk to you. Ben, let me just start by asking, did you play sports as a youth, and what was that experience like if you did? Well, I wasn't very accomplished, but yes, I played uh, where I grew up. We just sort of played whatever the major sport was that was going on at the time. So in baseball season, we played baseball. In football season, we played football. In terms of organized sports, eh, you know, I tried out for some things, and uh, you know, I was, I was a solid JV player in football and baseball, that sort of thing. Do you feel like you, uh, you know, we talk about youth sports ideally being for better athletes, uh, to produce better athletes and better people. Do you feel like you learned life lessons from your experience in sports that helped you as an adult? Well, I think so. I mean, I had a wonderful Little League coach, and his his um, uh, behavior always stuck in my mind. He was just the consummate good citizen and good sport, and I remember him. Uh, rounding us up after every game. We, I, I, although I was not a great player, I was on a, an amazing team, and uh, we we used to just beat the tar out of every every other team we played. And I would remember he would round us up after each game, and we would do a cheer for the other team, and um, that just became part of our you know just part of our tradition, and that just always stuck with me. He was just such a good guy, and it, you know for him it was just all about learning, getting better, and uh, really respecting not only his players, but uh, the opposing team. You know, you used a term that I really love. He, he was a good citizen. And, um, you know, I think so much of the focus on youth sports now, high school and youth sports, is about performance on the field. Um, and, you know, John Madden famously said, winning is the best deodorant. And I think too often coaches at every level, including youth sports, uh, they're so focused on winning that they forget about the, the role model of being a good citizen. Well, that's right. I agree. They're in a wonderful position to role model exemplary, exemplary behavior that that uh, transcends the sport itself and um, to show young people just, you know, how to comport themselves in life. Um, you know, the, you know your, your parents, of course, have a tremendous influence on you, but your coaches, too. And, uh how they treat their players and how they encourage their players to treat other players, um, I think is something that can stick with young people for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know, we um, at Positive Coach Alliance, we say there's three things kids need for a great youth sports experience. One is uh, they need to be so connected to their coach and their team. They want they need to 
believe they can get better, and they want to be part of a team that does things the right way so they can feel good about it. And, um, you know, whatever they want to talk to you about today, your, your research is so interesting and, and relevant to youth sports. This idea that coaches who want their kids to commit to the sport and commit to them and commit to their team, that the connection has to come before the commitment. That we have a term we call it uh, the uh, emotional tank. When you fill kids' emotional tank, they start to feel connected to their teammates and, and the coach. And we really say that it, you know, commitment follows connection. You, you you connect the kids and and wonder if you have any reaction to that idea. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I can see how the way the coach interacts with their players can have a tremendous influence on the attitudes um, that players have that goes you know, well beyond the winning and losing and even the learning of the game itself, but to how they see themselves. Do they see themselves as uh, capable individuals? Do they see themselves as um, uh, individuals who deserve respect and are prepared to give respect to other people? Uh, the coach is in a position to affect all of that. You know, you were quoted uh, about a year ago, Sports Illustrated had an article called The Last Days of the Abusive Coach, which I hope is prophetic. <laughs> I hope we are in the last days of it. And you were quoted in that. I was also. And, and you said, quote, there's no support for the idea that outcomes get better as abusive leadership increases, unquote. Is there a lot of research supporting this idea? Absolutely. And uh, this is something that, uh, you know, we're <laughs> – you know, a lot, a lot of people out there do not believe that. Um, there's, there's this um, lay belief that's uh, rolling around out there. I see it in my MBA students. I see it on television when I see coaches screaming and yelling and acting crazy. We just had uh, a very well-known college football coach do it just a few days ago to one of his assistant coaches and uh, sort of get lauded for it. And um, there is just no data to support the idea that uh, the more you behave in that way, the, the, the yelling, the screaming, the, the, the crazy outbursts, there's no support for the idea that the more you do that, the better the outcomes get. Now, it is certainly the case that coaches who behave that way can still be successful. But what's important to understand is that it's never, at least based on our data, it is never because of that um, abusive behavior. It is always in spite of it. And so the takeaway that comes from all the research we've done is that those coaches would probably have more success if they dipped into their tool chest and found other ways of getting the attention of the people that they're trying to influence. You know, uh, I think in that same article you wrote, or maybe it's something else, I've been reading a bunch of your uh, your work you said, we as a society view abusive leader behavior as an effective management management technique, and that just seems so obviously true. But why in the world is that the case when there's so much evidence that you get better results uh, with a positive approach? Why does our society believe that that nasty, snarly style of coaching is, is effective? Well, I think that there's some, you know, old-time psychology research that might help us explain that. Um, you know, when you take a take for example a, a coach that uh, you know everyone knows, you know, and um, uh, Bobby Knight, you know, everyone associates him with particular style of behavior. 
everybody knows he's incredibly successful. And everyone, including the people that really adore him, will say that, yeah, and also there are times when he, you know, didn't comport himself the way we would like our coaches, you know, to to behave. We, we certainly wouldn't want the coach of our kid to, to behave that way. And, you know, when we're trying to make sense of why he's successful, it's easy to forget that he's a brilliant tactician, that, you know, when it comes to understanding the X's and O's of basketball and uh, teaching uh, the next generation the X's and O's, that he's got to be one of the best. Uh, and we forget that. And what sort of is fresh in our minds and what's um, what we remember about him isn't going to be those moments when he is very lucidly explaining something to a player. It's him throwing a chair across the uh, court or going after a player, you know, with his hands around their neck. That's just sort of what we remember. And we begin to associate those very salient kinds of behaviors, those things that we can't really ignore, the hostile ones, with the success of the coach. And we tend to overlook the quiet things that we may not even see if we're, you know, third parties. And and so it just over time, we begin to uh, have this connection between being abusive and being successful that just sort of perpetuates itself. And, you know, as long as a person, as, you know, as a, uh, a person in a leadership position or as a follower, if you do not experience these kinds of behaviors directly and see for yourself the negative effects that it, that it has, it may be lost on you that, in fact, in the grand scheme, abusive behavior really undermines effectiveness. Yeah. You know, um, one of the documents you sent me, uh, you talked about a case study, uh, had a part A, case A, B, C, and I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on the, the name of that case, but you used it with your MBA students, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about that, because it just seems so relevant to how the, the, the latent kind of attitudes people have about abusive behavior. Yes, exactly. Well, and I want to tell you, it came as a bit of a surprise to me to learn that uh, my students feel the way that they do. But this is a case uh, that describes a boss who um, comes into an organization that isn't doing very well. Um, uh, over the course of time, the organization starts to do better. Okay, he's a he's a hard driving boss, in the words of uh, some of his own followers, and even in the minds of my students, um, and most of my students will rate him as being uh, an incredibly effective leader because of the you know, big differences they see between uh, the organization's profits and uh, uh, so forth when he first joins the organization and what things look like uh, a couple of years later. Um, and sprinkled throughout the case, and what seems to be just missed by my students when they're reading the case are these moments when he he slams his fist, he, uh, he screams and yells at his employees, tells them that they're stupid, threatens them, and so forth. And my students will, you know, when I ask them what you think about this guy as, this guy as a leader, you know, in a class of 50 students, all but two or three will say that he's really darn good. And they admire his style, and they think he's doing all right. And 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 there'll always be this small number of students. I said I can always count on a good ninety plus percent 
sort of being in love with this with this leader. But I can also count on a couple of students in the class, and it's usually not more than a few, who will look at the conversation, and I can just see that their heads are spinning. They're like, what is going on here? What are they missing? And they will just be appalled by the nature of the conversation, and they will say, you know, this guy's dangerous. His behavior is just scary. How can you guys like him so much? And and the this vast majority who like the um, leader so much, um, they'll think that uh, these, you know, two or three are are softies and they don't understand that the way things work in the in the real world is that you know sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet you you know got to be tough with people when they're you know not performing well and so on and it is over the course of uh, several um uh chapters in the case that we come to realize that that two or three in the minority actually had it figured out because this guy over time just completely implodes and um, you know the organization is left with uh, a huge vacuum because they have to let him go um, because of his outrageous behavior. And you know one of, the, one of the big takeaways that I try to impress upon that majority who seem to like him so much is that they seem to have been they've lured themselves into this false dichotomy that when it comes to picking leaders, your only choices are two: you can pick the 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 loud and abusive successful leader or you can pick as your alternative the quiet and humble ineffective one and i asked them if they can think of anyone they've ever known in a leadership position now this is after we we've gone through the case can they think of anybody who really had a combination of both qualities that they were successful but they also seem to do it in a I don't. I, I, the term I use sometimes is quiet, but what I mean is just sort of um, deliberate. Um, uh, that they're able to influence people without raising their voice. They just have a style that people can connect with, and just about everybody can recall someone like that. And so yeah. I tell them, you know, you've lured yourself into this false dichotomy when you knew there was another option that was available. You just forgot about that, and we need to constantly remind ourselves that that option is out there. And even in the coaching ranks, we can all think of somebody who is the antithesis of the crazy yelling screamer who happens to be successful. There's also those individuals out there who get it done in a quiet, humble, um, but certainly assertive manner. You know, I, uh, that that's that's fantastic. I um, think about what most people think of toughness. And when they see somebody lose their temper and scream, um, like, wow, that guy's being really tough. And I really think mental toughness is about being able to stay positive when things start to go bad. Um, so I think we just, you know, we, we take those cues, somebody who loses their temper, which is the easiest thing in the world to do. Things don't go well and you lose your temper. That's not a sign of toughness. Mental toughness is really, you know, Bruce Bochy, the Giants manager, uh, we gave him our Lifetime Achievement Award a few years ago, and he talked about baseball being just a really long season. And no matter how good you're doing, you're going to have losing streaks. And the key to resilience is is staying positive in the in the face of that uh, those challenges. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, um, we, you know, we know from uh, lots of research in psychology that these loud outbursts we're seeing are usually the result of somebody in a position of power who loses control over their executive functions. They're not in control. They're out of control. 
And it's the person who is able to get things done while maintaining their, um, you know, their, their, their focus that is the person to be role modeled and marveled at. You know, you, you note that there are precursors in, in the environment that makes abuse more likely. Um, what, what are some of those precursors? If we were to just look at a situation and say, well, that's a situation where supervisor abuse or leader abuse is more likely. What, what are those precursors? Right. So there's lots of specific things that we can look at. Um, and, you know, we have found, for example, that uh, bosses who are under pressure, bosses who feel like they've been mistreated themselves from up above, um, uh, bosses who sort of believe in this, uh, this lay belief that abuse works are more likely to be abusive. There's lots and lots of individual variables, but um, what we've done recently is to try to, because there's dozens of things. It turns out there's dozens of specific factors. What we've tried to do is to try to organize them in some kind of coherent way so that I could answer a question like this one without just giving you a long list. And what we've identified, we believe that the all the different variables that we have identified can um, be categorized into three big themes, and they are, number one, what we call social learning. Okay, so the idea that um, you're more likely to engage in any kind of behavior if you've learned to believe that it works, that it's normal, and so forth. And so um, what we're saying here is that um, bosses, coaches are far more likely to engage in abusive behavior if they think that they're supposed to, if they think it's okay, if They've learned over time from their own coaches and from the culture in which they operate that it is appropriate and acceptable. And I think this is, you know, one of the reasons why it might be difficult in the coaching ranks, why the challenge is so great to try to reverse that and why the positive coaching alliance is so important because you're fighting against this inertia that goes back many years where this idea that, you know, the coach is sort of supposed to be hostile, that's it's in many ways it became ingrained in our society. Uh, the second one is this idea that a coach or a leader is more likely to engage in abusive behavior when they feel threatened in some way, um, when their identity is threatened. So um, everybody um, holds an identity, a, a, a way that they see themselves, okay? And most of us want to see ourselves in a positive way. Um, we want to see ourselves as capable, as um, as decent human beings, right? Uh, someone who takes on a leadership position is very likely to want to see themselves as a leader, as in control. And when events around them begin to chip away at that belief or can threaten to chip away at that, um, they're more likely to be abusive. And things like, you know, being under performance pressure, um, having your um, uh, your failures, you know, you know, televised on a, on a grand scheme. I think that this is something that uh, uh, college coaches, you know, have to deal with. When they fail, boy, everyone can see it happen. Um, and then the third um, element is uh, it comes out of the uh, very rich research, it's very interesting stuff, on what we call ego depletion. And it's the idea that you have only so much um, cognitive resource, ability to sort of control your behavior and to um, maintain your focus on behaviors that really work for you, all right? When a person is ego depleted, what it means is that 
cognitively they're just worn out. In the same way that a person who, you know, you run a marathon, you wear out your body, right? You, by the time you finish, you are just exhausted. Well, you can engage in lots of mental activity that can sort of drain your cognitive resources, and so you just become mentally fatigued. And we have found that when people in leadership positions are just worn out, they are much more likely to engage in abusive kinds of behaviors. And this sort of gets back to the point we were making uh, just a few minutes ago, um, the idea that the person who is um, you know, in a coaching position, in a leadership position, and you know, they, they've been at it for a long time, like the long season that, that Bochi was referring to, that can wear you out. So that by the end of it, you're probably going to be more exhausted than you were in the beginning. You're just not as recharged and so forth. And it puts you at risk of behaving in an abusive way. And so those seem to be the three themes that um, kind of encapsulate all the different um, factors, the individual factors that are related to abusive behavior. The social learning phenomenon, um, this feeling like your personal identity, how you see yourself as threatened, and, of course, just exhaustion. Wow, um, just that, that's that's, that's <laughs> brilliant. Thank you. Um, you know, this the idea of the identity um, is something I've been thinking and writing about a lot. Um, the I had a conversation with Pete Carroll, the Seahawks uh, coach, uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the things he said was that um, the goal for the Seahawks coaches is to help every player identify their best self, their highest and best self. And then the coach's job is to get them to commit to that and, and keep bringing that back to them. And um, I was influenced right when I started PCA, which is almost 20 years ago now, uh, Peter Senge at MIT uh, wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline, and he talks about mental models. And you know, we think the, the mental model of a coach in this society is win at all costs. That's what they think they're supposed to do if they're not winning their they're, um, you know, they're they're not being a successful coach. So we developed a model, a double goal coach. First goal is winning. Second, more important goal, using sports to teach life lessons. And then the, for athletes, a triple impact competitor to make yourself better, your teammates better, and the game better by the way you compete. And um, I've, I've been been working, uh, writing, and thinking about this idea of how do we get coaches to see themselves as helping their players identify their highest and best self, both on the field as athletes, but also as as um, as humans. And uh, one, one more thing, and I'd love your reaction to this, Jim March, who um, was kind of a giant in the world of organizational behavior, was a, a professor of mine, actually a, a boss for mine for a while, and, and kind of a mentor. And he talks about two different ways you change people's behavior. One is through carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments. But he says the more effective way is to change people's identity, change people how people think about themselves, and then they try to live up to that. So it's kind of what we're trying to move towards with Positive Coaching Alliance is get athletes to think of themselves, I want to be a triple impact competitor, so what would a triple impact competitor do in this situation? Coaches saying, I want to be a double goal coach, what would a double goal coach do in this situation? And then the behavior hopefully will follow. Any Any thoughts about all that? Well, you know, before you um, said what you just said a moment ago and you, you, where you were leading was, well, what do we do about it? The answer is what you're doing. Um, that, that's what's been missing from the equation all these years is that the role models are, have been 
many of the wrong role models. And we haven't done nearly enough to celebrate the accomplishments of coaches who do it the way you're describing. We spend way too much time celebrating those other coaches who, you know, and I can understand why, if they win a national championship, it's hard not to notice what they've done and to keep accolades on them. But if we can do a better job of promoting an alternative way of getting it done, it will slowly change minds. And I, I absolutely agree with March, and he's not the only one who says that. There's um, lots of other um, experts in the field, and they will tell you that it's not through reward and punishment. And if you're trying to get it done that way, it, it only goes so far. It's by um, changing the minds of people as they're moving into the coaching ranks and even after they're in the coaching ranks. Um, the more of those individuals, individuals that we can hold out as role models to be emulated, the more this will catch on. Wow. Um, you use the term high-performance work practices. Um, and the, the article that you wrote that I was reading, I wasn't clear on if those are good things or bad things. What are some examples of high-performance work practices? Well, sure. That's and it's actually it's not my term. Um, and uh, what what you're referring to is uh, a book where I, I just contributed um, a uh, a preface to it. Um, so th this is something that uh, folks in my field talk about. Um, high performance work practices involve you know setting goals and uh, um, um, you know providing the proper reward system, uh, structuring the work in the right way. It's it's basically it's an amalgamation of lots of different things that over the course of time uh, scholars have learned um, connect to high performance. And that the book that, you know, I had, you know, just, you know, a, a small bit to do with, um, the purpose of the book was to make the case that sometimes when you are telling people in leadership positions that all that matters is performance, uh, some side effects can be observed that you don't want any part of. And one of them is hostility. And so that, that's one, one of the themes from the book is this idea that in this you know, mantra where we talk about trying to get the highest performance possible out of work units, um, if we don't pay lots and lots of attention to how the, how the you know, leader gets it done, then we're setting ourselves up for other kinds of problems. And that's, that's really what the tone of the book was, was about, and this idea that sometimes there can be a fine line between instilling high-performance work practices in some places and the threat of abuse emerging as a consequence. Yeah, I'm curious. How did you um, – what caused you, you know, as you work on your Ph.D. to become a professor um, – you know, you, you've focused on psychology. There's a lot of different directions you could go. What caused you to look at abusive supervision and leadership in the first place? Sure. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I started out, I actually I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And I had this dream of going to Ohio State's um, uh, clinical psych program. That's all I wanted in this whole wide world. And all I, I got waitlisted. That's the best I could do. And uh, what I wanted to do was, was do research and do counseling and therapy on well-being. Uh, you know, I just had it in me to try to, you know, do things that would make people feel better. All right, it's just a general theme. And I wanted to do clinical psychology. And because it didn't work out that first year, you know, I realized that I have to go broader um, when you're applying to clinical psych programs because they're so competitive. Uh, 
but I didn't want to wait a year, and so I started another program. I, I happened to have moved down to South Florida, and I thought, well, you know, while I'm waiting to get into a really uh, wonderful PhD program in clinical psychology, I ought to get involved in something, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get an MBA. And when I, um, I happened to live near the University of Miami, I traveled down there and um, uh, talked to them about getting into their um, uh, PhD program in clinical psych, but to do an MBA first. And they persuaded me to study organizational psychology, and they said, well, you can study well-being, right? While you're doing that, you don't have to be a clinical psychologist to study, you know, depression, anxiety, health, well-being, that sort of thing. And so I started a degree in organizational psychology, and it just so happens that the person who I became connected with, my major professor, was a leadership scholar. And soon after getting to know him, I saw a connection between the things he was interested in, which is leader behavior, and the things I was interested in, which is well-being. Because it turns out that for most people, you know, they spend a lot of their waking hours at work, and the person who seems to have the biggest influence on them, good or bad, is their boss. And by studying what it is the boss does, you can learn a lot about what works and does not work for individuals, you know, in their in their careers, in their work lives, and in their you know their you know their live lives. Um, so over the course of time, I just started focusing on what it is the leader does, and it became very apparent to me, uh, you know, after I'd been in the profession about ten years, that the thing that leaders can do to really make things miserable for their employees is to behave in an abusive way. And it turns out to be very powerful. It, it can swamp the effect of just about any other variable that we've identified as having a threatening effect on a person's well-being at work. Nothing seems mm -hmm. to be worse, more impactful than a boss who yells, screams, tells them that they're stupid, and so forth. Nothing is, seems to be more impactful than that. You know, um, there's a, a, a old parable about um, this Chinese farmer and he had a son. They had one horse, and the horse, uh, the son left the gate open. The horse ran away, and he just, you know, family's in trouble now, and he feels so bad. He goes to his dad and says, uh, "Oh man, this is the worst thing that could happen. I'm so sorry." And the dad says, "Oh, how do you know that?" And the next day, the horse comes back leading four other horses. So now they have five horses, and the kid says, oh, man, this is the best thing that could happen. And his dad says, how do you know that? And um, then he's working with the horse, and he falls off and breaks his shoulder, and it's the worst thing. And then the next day, the empire, emperor's troops come through taking all the young men, but they don't take him because he's injured. And we use that to talk about we really don't know what's best for us sometimes. So you are getting waitlisted uh, in clinical psychology. You know, it turned out to be a really good thing. Uh, probably didn't feel that. Probably didn't feel that way at the time. I bet. <laughs> at the time, I was. I just was absolutely crushed. And you are right. Uh, right now, I can't imagine how things could have turned out better for me than if I, you know, hadn't pursued what I did. So I, I feel very fortunate. But, but then, who knows, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the things that's, um, that you mentioned that um, I just think is so important and I think just does not get much um, focus, which you said, when I see the depression levels of young athletes, our best young people physically and mentally who have taken all the steps to get to a high level, to see them that vulnerable must mean the environment is overwhelming. And, and it just, you know, I, I grew up in a time when... Uh, 
I call it the golden age of sandlot ball, and maybe it wasn't as golden as I remember it, but there weren't a lot of adults around. It was just just fun. And now I think about this idea of, of athletes being depressed uh, because of the environment they're in. That's just that's really sad. It's sad and it's shocking, and I, I stand by that statement. I think that uh, you know the very typical college athlete. You know, most of us, you know, we focus on one or two, you know, sports that happen to be in the limelight all the time, right? But when you take or when you think about all the college athletics, right? So we're talking about all the women's sports and all the men's sports that don't get nearly as much attention. And you think about all of those individuals. Not all of them are in it to go pro, to make lots of money and so forth. Athletics is for them um, a way of getting a terrific education and a way of developing their minds as well as their bodies. Um, many of these athletes uh, across all the all the various sports um, are, in my mind, the best and brightest. They're sharp. They're sharp people, and they are, of course, physically very gifted individuals too. And to think that this collection of individuals would have um, depression levels on a typical college campus that could be two to three times higher than the typical college student is to me just shocking and it's sickening. That should not be happening. It means there's something wrong. Um, these people, you know, these are the leaders of tomorrow. Um, we should be taking better care of them. Uh, and, you know, we, we have to understand that they're capable of a lot. They can take a lot of stress. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that the way they got to where they are is that they've put themselves out there. They've stretched themselves. It's not like they need to be pampered but they do need to be cared for. We need to monitor their development. We need to be sure that we're saying the right things to them, that we're providing them the opportunities to develop themselves. And we need to be very vigilant to make sure that we are not undermining the creation of these, you know, these works of art. You know, these are very special gifted kids and they, you know, we need to treat them um, that way. Yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, I think this is obvious, but I want to I want to be real explicit here. Uh, what's the carryover uh, from your work in abusive leadership in the workplace to youth sports? Is you know somebody might say, well, sports is different. It's a different culture, and and quote being hard on kids. I'll tell you, one of the things I just shudder whenever I read it about a coach. You know, I'm hard on kids, but it's good for them. It's just like, ugh. Um, is right. sports different than the workplace? And maybe, you know, maybe being hard on kids works better in the, in the in sports than it does in the workplace. Right. Okay, this is a great question. And I want you to know that I hear this in every industry I walk into. I gave a talk uh, just last spring at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And I, you know, I gave this talk about abusive leadership, and what did I hear afterwards? Well, that's for all those other industries, but not in the military. And mm. it happens when I go into manufacturing sites, and they're like, well, you just don't understand the unique pressures we're under here. And and then, you know, I hear the same thing with stockbrokers, with attorneys. Um, I once uh, had an opportunity to um, get in the same room with 20 uh, directors of uh, theater and musical performance. And what do they tell me? In their environment, they have got 
to let them have it or they just won't get anything done. So I hear this in, it, it, you know, every industry thinks it's got the monopoly on the, the value of toughness, and I don't believe it anymore because the data speak. And what the data tell us is that um, uh, these kinds of behaviors always undermine performance, that there are always going to be leaders in every industry, including college athletics, that get it done another way, and they are very successful. So I just don't buy it anymore. I think it's yeah. laziness. I think that uh, it's a cop-out. I think that, you know, to, you know, to um, lead in other ways is hard, and it requires skill sets that some people just don't have. They haven't developed that way of communicating to people in a way that both gets their attention without creating these negative side effects. They haven't learned to do it. And instead of putting in the hard work to figure out how to do it, they're falling back on this, what I now believe to be a lame excuse. It doesn't lame apply excuse. here. Lame excuse. I love it. You know, uh, we have a dog, a lovely dog, Buster. Uh, we got him at a, a shelter and he was very depressed and very fearful. And uh, we had a dog trainer come and, and help us work with him. And and he, um, what she said was, you know, he's fearful, and so he barks and he, he goes nuts because he's afraid. And then when he gets into that thing, it also kind of feels good that he's, you know, he's just going nuts. Um, and I think, in addition to what you said, I agree with everything there. But I also think. Um, sometimes it just feels good to people when they can dominate other people. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. Um, we, we know, and once again, I think this gets back to the idea that people who seek out and assume leadership positions, they, they prefer being in control. It's part of the identity, right? And when, you know, they're, you know, dealing with either threats from above or threats from below, you know, from their own employees or athletes, who seem to be exerting control, that can be very threatening. So, yeah, I would agree with you entirely. Ben, this has been fabulous. Um, I'm so glad you're involved with Positive Coaching Alliance, and your work is so important. And and uh, thank you for, uh, for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, same here. I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Um, so, Ben, uh, this will be edited. Um, to, to end there, but a couple of things I think you I mentioned. I your ear um, off. I apologize for that. Sometimes no, I really no, get going when fantastic. I'm about this stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm, I was with you the whole way. It's great. You, you mentioned um, a, a leadership scholar at the University of Miami. Who, who was that that you worked with? There? Oh, sure. His name was Chet Shrisan. How do you spell the last name? S C H R I E. S-H-E-I-M, Shreesheim. And he was a leadership scholar going back a long ways. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but at one time, um, Ohio State was sort of the, it was pure, purely you know, coincidental, Ohio State was the center for leadership research. Some of the, the best leadership minds were here at Ohio State. And my advisor, again by pure coincidence, got his degree here at Ohio State. And uh, he you know kind of moved around from job to job in his um, I just happened to catch him after he moved to the University of Miami, and that's where I got to know him. Now, he never did research on abusive leadership. Um, I sort of came upon that myself, but uh, he's the one who got me interested in the importance of what it is the leader does as you know, having an effect on the day-to-day -day 
um, behavior, thoughts, emotions, and what have you of individual employees. Is he still alive? He is, yeah. He's still at Ohio okay, State. Uh, excuse me, at the University of Miami, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll look him up. The other thing you said I wanted to ask about was, um, you know, I mentioned Jim March, who introduced me to the idea of of identity change as a way to change people's behavior. And you said there are other experts beside him who talk about that, and I'm curious. I'd love oh. to know some other folks I can read about. Sure. Well, what I was thinking about, and I'm sure you're already familiar with this, I mean, you, you had said that March had uh, identified like these two categories of like influences on individuals that, that ch changes people's behavior. One was carrot and sticks. And the other is something that comes more from within. I mean, you, you described it as identity. I would describe it as sort of intrinsic motivation. And so what I was thinking about, you know, Daniel Pink's work, Deshi's work, that kind of thing. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I assigned Pink in my MBA class, um, and we talk about it from day one. So, yeah, that, that's actually yep. what I was thinking about there. Good. Okay. Yeah. Good. Ben, this has been fantastic. Any, uh, any last things you want to say? I, I'm so grateful to you. Well, I, you know, what I would say is you're doing such important work. I didn't know that what you were doing existed until um, you, um, you know, uh, hit me up out of the blue, and I'm just delighted. I think it's important work, and I think that it's a long-term project. I know it sounds like you've been working on it a long time, but, um, uh, in, you know, I believe that over the course of time, it's going to have a real impact on how coaching is done. So more power to you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.